0: Team, wonderful job is always leading us into the presence of the Lord to worship Him, praise Him. Those songs are offerings back to Him, amen? amen. It's not about us. You know, we get caught up in worship. You know, I like this song. It's about me. It makes me want to move or whatever. It's not what it's about. It's about worshiping Him, returning that to Him in praise. And our, our, Pastor Aaron does a great job in leading our praise team and leading us to worship the Lord and offering praise back to Him, amen. So, wonderful thing. Turn your wood to, uh, in your Bibles, to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to begin a new chapter, and um, looking forward to this. This has just been a, a wonderful book. I'll say this. It's always, it, it, I, I, I've told y'all this, I don't, I don't want people to come pat me on the back and go, boy, that was a, that, you just, boy, you just sounded so eloquent today. You sounded, I'm not going to hear that, but I, that's not what I want to hear. Uh, they go, you speak, you're from Georgia, you don't speak good English, um, uh, you know, OK, don't say that either. But anyway, uh, whatever I was going to say, I don't I'm not looking for people to puff me up. That's not what I want. But man, I'm telling you what, if God uses the message, I love to hear that. Amen. God uses the message that that he's prepared in me as, as his just a tool. I'm just his instrument. I'm his tool. And if he and if he prepares in me a message that then uses that message in your life, I want to hear that. And so as we've, over the weeks that we've done this study in Philippians, and this, this book that we often call the, this, the joy book, and we've learned already, it's not, it's not a book about joy, it's a book about Jesus. And it's about the joy that comes from Him, from our focus on Him. But I have heard several testimonies of folks who have either said, i got my joy back. I'm joyous. I have joy in my life for the first time. I could name two people right now who've told me that. And I almost want to weep when I hear that because that's what you want to see is the Word of God impacting lives. Amen? Amen? And so you go, well, the Word of God never impacts my life that way. Well, maybe you aren't preparing yourself to receive the Word of God. Right. Come in ready to hear it. Come in, pray right now. Pray right now before we get started. Lord, speak to my heart. Help me not to hear Pastor Conrad. Help me hear from you. Help me hear your word. And Lord, even if it's something that he doesn't say that you want to get to me about, get to me. I open myself to hear from you today. Be ready to receive. Be humbly. Come before his word and then obediently respond to what he does. And you can have those moments. You can have that joy. That's what this book is about is as, as Paul teaches us and, and, and shares with us these things. We preached a message earlier on. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but we preached early on the joy stealers. In each chapter, there's really a focus of things that steal our joy. Man, if we'll focus on these things, we stop that joy stealing and we stay with joy. Amen. So let's uh, let's get started here. And the title of the message this morning is this, As we continue in. I don't remember what I called this series. Um, My mind, I write it down because my brain slips anyway, but it's really slipping these days. Um, Joy unspeakable unspeakable and full of glory. (laughs) I was looking and I didn't see it up there, but uh, joy unspeakable. So I think this is about the 12th message in this series. So we begin chapter three, but the title of this message today is, what are you counting on? What are you counting on? We're going to look at, I think, the first nine verses. And we may actually next week back up and catch a few of these again. But we're going to look at the first nine verses. Verse 1 says, finally, now, Paul just shows you he is a good, he had to be a Baptist. He is a good Baptist preacher because here he is right in the middle of the book. And when everybody's going, okay, okay, he says, finally. And they think he's wrapping it up. No, he's got two more chapters to go. <laughs> he, finally, finally. No, no, no. He's just catching his second wind. That's right. Finally, I caught my second wind because here we go. Uh, so finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Have we heard that? Yeah. Well, we've heard that a lot. And he says, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. He, You know what he says? Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice, 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 rejoice. We started this series with an overview of the book and we looked at the joy stealers, things that steal our joy. In chapter 1, we looked at circumstances. It's circumstances. Anybody's circumstances ever steal your joy? It does. And Paul's answer is this. It's the single mind. When we have a mind that is focused on Christ, it isn't distracted by circumstances so joy, we can have joy then in the in spite of circumstances. Okay, so then in chapter two we get to people. Oh boy, can people steal your joy? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh my, people can steal our joy. I've been, I've had, I, we've we've had situations in the road here recently. I've been, uh, I've been told a couple of times I'm number one. I'm number one. Y'all know what I mean, okay? They tell me I'm number one, and. uh And it wasn't anything I did. It's what they did, and then they get mad, and, and, you know, so anyway. Uh, People, they can steal our joy. But Paul teaches us about the submissive mind in chapter 2. And what that is, it's having the mind of Christ. So our mind in chapter 1 is set on Christ. We're single-minded. Our focus is on Him. In chapter 2, then, because of a mind focused on Him, we have a mind like His. We get the submissive mind, having that humble mind and, and, and it's, it, it's, um, it's a mind, then, that humble mind is not distracted by people. We're not pulled away, so we can have joy in spite of people. Now, circumstances and people can rob us of joy, but so can things. Things can, can steal our joy. And that's the thief that Paul deals with here in chapter 3. Paul answer, Paul's answer to the, thing, the, the thief of things is this. It's the spiritual mind. So we've looked at the single mind. The submissive mind, and now in chapter 3, we're going to look at the spiritual mind. In verses 18 and 19, he described professing Christians who minded earthly things. They they didn't have the spiritual mind. They have an earthly mind. Uh, But then in verse 20, he describes the believer with the spiritual mind, and the spiritual mind is the mind that minds heavenly things. So um, it's really looking at things from a heavenly perspective. Now, remember, we were talking early on about, about Philippi, and it's a colony of Rome. It's a Roman colony, and it really was, when, when we talked about what it was like there, it, they spoke the language of Rome. They used the, the writing of Rome. If you went around, everything was written in, in their, their language. They spoke it. They dressed in the dress of Rome. So it was really a Rome away from Rome. It's what it was. A little play on words there, okay? I have to tell you, because I'm from Georgia, and you go, he wouldn't have thought of that, but... Rome away from home, home away from home. So if someone was there, they felt like they were in Rome. It's a little Rome. And in the same sense, the people of God are a colony of where? What are the people of God? We're a colony of where? Y'all are struggling as bad as I am this morning. We would be a colony of heaven, right? So if, if, if Philippi is a colony of Rome, we're a colony of heaven. And so if they have what they're doing in their colony, they're, they're, they want to be like they're in Rome. They want to live like they're in Rome. They want to think about things like they're in Rome. They're in Philippi. They're, they're that colony. We, as the children of God, our home is where? Heaven. So here on earth, we're a colony of heaven. And so instead of having an earthly mind, we should have a heavenly mind. Todd, uh, Todd, when you were over in Africa, did you have a mind? Did you ever really, really think like the locals, or did you have a, 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 an American mind? Yeah, an American mind, right? So you were living in a foreign land, but you didn't, you didn't, you didn't become like that. You were still a, an expat. You were a foreigner there. You were your mind thought like an American. We ought to think like we're from heaven. That's the way we ought to live, and that's what the the idea of this in, in chapter three is to have the spiritual mind to look at things from a heavenly perspective. Verse 20 says our citizenship is in heaven, and we, and we look at earth from heaven's point of view, and that is the spiritual mind. It's easy for us to get wrapped up in things. Uh, just say amen right there, right? It's easy to get wrapped up in things. Not only tangible things that we can see and touch and possess, but also the intangible, such as reputation and fame and recognition and achievement. So there are a lot of different things, tangible and intangible, that can still our joy and then they can get us kind of locked up. Paul wrote about things, uh, he wrote about what things were gained to him in verse 7. He said, What things were gained? He talks about that. And then he mentioned things which are behind. And things which are before verses, uh, in verse thirteen. So Paul's talking a lot in here about things. In fact, if you go through the, the chapter three, you should you could underline every time he uses the word things. You'll see it's a theme in here. In Paul's case, some of these things were intangible, such as religious achievements and feelings of self satisfaction and morality. Uh, those were things for Paul. It was things that he held to as a, as a non believer. We today we can be captured both by tangibles and intangible, and the result is we lose our joy. Luke twelve fifteen, Jesus said, "Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses." That's not what life is about. The older I get, the better I understand that. Amen. It's not about things. I mean, I it's like I don't I I don't know what it be. It might be nice to be rich. I don't know. It Might be make things a little easier. But I don't. I can't take it with me. I've always said I'd just like to have a little bit to walk around with. You know, that'd be nice. That'd be nice. But it's not about things. And the older I get, you know, I was. You know, we used to. I don't know about you. I used to. There's things you collect and you hold on to and you carry with you and you get. But sometimes the older you get, you look back on some of it and you go, Why in the world do we keep, Gina? Why did we carry this from Georgia to Indiana, and then load it up on a moving truck and bring it to Florida? Why? Why in the world do we still have this? So things, we, you know, don't, we shouldn't get caught up in things. And, uh, you know, here's the deal. Many people ha- have, have uh, they have the things money can buy and they've lost the things that money can't buy because they have not focused on the right things. So the key word that we'll find here in Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 through 9 is this. This is the key word for this is count, count, C-O-U-N-T. In the Greek, two different words are used, but it's the, basic, the, it's the basic idea is the same, and it's this idea of to evaluate or to assess. Okay, So if you're counting something, you're evaluating it, you're, you're taking an inventory, you're assessing it, you're trying to understand what's going on there. But that's what he's talking about in verses 7 and 8. There's two words there, used, but it's this idea of evaluating or assessing, and that's this word count. Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And it's sad how few actually sit down to seriously weigh out, again, to evaluate or to assess their values, their values. We don't often sit down and assess our values that control our decisions and the direction of our life. You know know what happens when we don't do that right? We just kind of float along. If we're, if we're not assessing our values and and, and and counting that and looking at that, you know what? We can be way off base in our decisions in the, in the direction of our life. We need to be counting. We need to be assessing our life. Why do many Christians today fail to experience real Christian joy? Because many are slaves to things. Again, tangible things or intangible things. So in Paul's case, the things he was living for before he knew Christ seemed to be commendable. He was was about a strict religious life. He was about obedience to the law. He was about the defense of the religion of his fathers. But none of these things satisfied him or gave him acceptance with God. All of that religious work, and it didn't bring him any closer to being in heaven. It didn't bring him any closer to a real relationship with God. Like most religious people today, Paul had enough morality to keep him out of trouble, but not enough righteousness to get him into heaven. Okay, it is not bad things that kept Paul away from Jesus or it's not it's not uh, it was not bad things that kept Paul away from Jesus. It was seemingly good things. It was things that he thought were good things, things that he thought were the right things. He was doing in uh, according to his faith as a or his religion, not really his faith, his religion as a Jew. He was doing all the right things. And we're going to see that in a little bit. But it was those seemingly good things that were keeping him away, from, truly away from God. Paul had not, uh, had, here's what Paul had to do. He had to lose his religion in order to find salvation. Now, Paul explains in this section that there are only two kinds of righteousness. There is works righteousness, okay? There are folks that have a works righteousness, and then there's faith righteousness. And only faith righteousness is acceptable to God, okay? So that's the introduction. Let's have a word of prayer real quick and... And, uh, and, and we'll pick up with what Paul then wants to teach us in the first part of chapter 3. Father, just bless now as we read your word and open your word and examine your word. Help us to learn something from your word today. God, speak to our hearts. If there's anybody here this morning that's, 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 that's resting and counting on things, or resting on their own righteousness, their works, their good things, God, I pray you'll reveal this morning the futility of that, the hopelessness of that. And uh, Lord, help us to, to seek your righteousness, which is the only righteousness that, that can reconcile us to you. So bless now, and uh, we'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so the first thing Paul's going to deal with is works righteousness, versus basically verses 2 through 6. And then what he does here, there's an exhortation that Paul gives in verse 2 and 3. First thing he says is beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. So who's Paul speaking about right here? Well, we know, you know your book, you know that he's talking about the Judaizers, and those are the ones who mixed, mixed the law and grace. These are ones who claim to be believers, they were Jewish but they had, been, they, had been, they, had, they had been saved. They had become Christians, so, to, so they said. But they continued to try to mix law and grace. These were the Judaizers. And Paul's letter to the Galatians was written primarily to combat their false teachings. So if you want to know these people and know what they were doing, go and read that book. There's, there's a lot about these folks and understanding what they were doing. But we see what Paul said there. I mean, he didn't have nice words. But if we're going to understand who they are, let's let's look back and see why Paul is giving such a stern warning against them. So from the very beginning, the gospel came to the Jew first. Gospel came to the Jew first. You can look at Acts chapter 3, verse 26. You can go to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, and we see there that the gospel came to the Jew first. The, the first seven chapters of Acts deal only with the Jewish believers or with Gentiles who were Jewish converts. You can look at chapter 2, verse 10. Look at that as a reference. But those first seven chapters, you're going to see that, that it, was, it was the Jews or Jewish converts who were becoming believers. Then in Acts chapter 8, the message went to the Samaritans. But this didn't cause too much of a commotion since the, the, the Samaritans were at least partially Jewish. Okay, so they were they were partially Jews, that so that didn't create a big problem. But then when Peter went to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, this caused an uproar. And Peter was called on the carpet to explain his activities. What are you doing? Why are you going? If you look in chapter 11, that's what they were dealing with. Why, are, why were you going to non-Jews? Why are you going to them and bringing them into... They're, they're, how can they become a Christian? They're not Jews. So the Gentiles in Acts 10 have become Christians without first becoming Jews, and this was a whole new thing in the church. And, it, and some of these folks, they didn't like it. They didn't think that was the way to do this. So Peter explained that it was God who had directed him to preach to the Gentiles, and the matter seemed to be settled. Okay, So that seemed to kind of calm down, but it wasn't settled for long because Paul was sent out by the Holy Spirit of God on his first missionary journey to to minister especially to the Jews. You go to Acts chapter 13, the uh, first three verses there, and 22 verse 21 really tells you that, that that's... That's what what Paul's ministry was, that he was called. And it was the Holy Spirit of God. It wasn't Paul's desire. It wasn't Paul's wish to do that. It's what God told him to do. When you act according to God's plan, then you know you're doing what God wants you to do. You don't have to wonder whether my idea is right or wrong. You follow what God says. So it didn't take long for the legalistic Jewish believers or professing believers to oppose Paul's ministry. And they come to Antioch, and they're teaching that it is necessary for the Gentiles to submit to Jewish law before they could be saved. So you understand what they're saying, right? They're saying, now, now they're saying, you have to become, a. You, if you're a Gentile, you have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. Now, we think that sounds stupid, right? But let's put it into today's terms. Um, You've you got to cut your hair before you can become a Christian. I don't know if anybody says that today, but it might be somebody. You've got to to put on a suit before you can become a Christian. Okay? So what what you've got there is legalism. That's the real definition of legalism. Because they're adding something to the gospel. Did the gospel require somebody to become a Jew? in order to become a Christian, so they had to become a Jew, and they got to follow all the rights as a Jew. They would have to, men would have to be circumcised in order to become, uh, you know, to, in order to become a Jew, and then as a Jew, then they could become a Christian. That's what these guys were saying. That, folks, is legalism. So I'm going to just take a little side note. Be careful what you call legalism today. Sometimes we're judging other people because they have, they have a, high, a, a different preference or a different standard. Okay, so there are churches that would be more formal than us, and there are folks who don't like that, so they're, well, boy, they're legalistic. You go in there and everybody's got a suit on. Well, maybe that's just their culture, but if they're not saying you have to wear a suit in order to be a Christian, that's not legalism. They just have a different standard. Okay, be careful of that. You may go into a church where everybody's in shorts and, and tank tops, and you go, oh, man, this is a, these folks, they're, man, they're just as liberal as you can get. These folks, man, they don't love God at all. You're, you're you're now judging them. You're you're being who's being legalistic then? Well, you can't love God wearing flip-flops and shorts in church. Who's being legalistic? Can't be a Christian and do that. All right, so we got to be real careful with those things. Legalism comes in when we require something in order for somebody to be saved. We're tying it to the gospel. That's that legalism that's being talked about right here. So this disagreement led to the conference in Jerusalem. That's described in Acts 15. They go there, they talk about these things, and the result of the conference was a confirmation of Paul's ministry, and it was a victory for the gospel of grace, for the grace of God. Amen? So that they they came to this understanding, they heard from God, that, you know what, you don't have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. They stated it very clearly there, this council. But the Judaizers didn't like that which is a lot of times what happens with legalistic people because they want the rules. They want it their way. They want God's way. They want it their way. you got to do it this way. Well, regardless of what the leadership said that heard from God, we don't believe that, and so they did their own thing. Um, so so the, 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 the determination was then that the Gentiles did not have to become Jews in order to, to be converted to Christianity. They just become Christians by by faith, by God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? It's the simple gospel. The Judaizers, the Judaizers they, they, didn't, they, they wouldn't be content with that. So they failed in their opposition to Paul at Antioch and then at Jerusalem. And so then what do they do? They follow him everywhere he goes, and they tried to steal his converts, and they tried to pervert the converts, they tried to steal them away, and they tried to get them to come to be Jews and follow the law and all those things in order to be Christians. Everywhere they went, still in still in converts, still in the churches, and they were like dogs, yapping at his ankles everywhere he went. So Paul says, beware of dogs, evil workers, and the mutilation. Now, dogs, if you know a little bit of, about the, the Jews in, in that day, the Jews, man, they didn't like dogs. They, didn't, they they despised dogs. Dogs were, they were associated with violence and uncleanness. Okay? So what Paul's saying there, when he calls them dogs, that is a major, that's that's about as harsh as you can get, okay? He says evil workers, and they were evil workers because their works were evil as they perverted the true gospel. And some might would say, you know, with these Judaizers, they were, I, I, I don't believe they're believers. I don't believe they're true believers, true converts. If they were, they would understand the gospel, right? So they're, they're, they perverted the gospel. And folks, here's the, here's the thing. People go sometimes, well, maybe I mean, these people believe a little different. So, you know, they, I understand in today's terms, sometimes people want to require baptism, First, with salvation, you know, you, you believe by faith, but you have to be baptized. And if you don't get baptized, it's baptism that really saves you. If someone says that, I've heard people go, well, you know, you, you know, what they're believing is someone believes by faith. So they're really saved then. And they may be wrong about the, 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 the fact they need to be baptized. They may be wrong on that. So they're, they're really Christians. They're not. They're not because they're not believing the true gospel. It'd be like saying, well, they're believing, they're following Jesus, but they don't believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. They just don't believe that, but they're following Jesus. Well, listen, if Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, if you don't believe that, then he's not God. You're following a false God. You're you're worshiping then a false God. If if he wasn't virgin born, he's not God's son. If he wasn't, well, I don't know if he was sinless. I don't know if he could have been sinless. You know, I just don't know if I believe that. But I, I follow him and I love Jesus. Well, you, you love someone that's a liar then. Because who you're following is a sinner. If he wasn't sinless, he's just another man. So you see the importance of a pure gospel. And if someone's adding to it or taking away from it, they've now perverted the gospel. They're not believers. These folks weren't believers. They were workers of evil in the name of God. And Paul calls them, he calls them the mutilation. Acts 15, 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Was that the gospel? That's not the gospel. That's a perversion. It's not true. So now they're leading these people into a false religion. Anybody who follows them is in a false religion, they're not going to be saved. So Paul stated that circumcision itself is only a mutilation. That's what he called it. It wasn't a a clean surgery. It's a mutilation. Now that word is graphic as you think about it. It's a mutilation. He said the true Christian has experienced a spiritual circumcision in Christ. That's Colossians 2.11. And doesn't need any fleshly operations. Circumcision, baptism, the Lord's Supper, tithing, or any other religious practice cannot save a person from their sins. Only faith in Jesus Christ can do that. So he he calls them these things. Then verse 3, he says, "...for we are the circumcision." Now Paul's talking here as a believer. He says, we are the circumcision. They're, They're talking about circumcision. They're circumcised, but we are the circumcision, listen, "...who worship God in the Spirit." rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. So in contrast to the false Christians, Paul described the true Christians, the true circumcision, and what that is is the circumcision of the heart. It's about the heart. Now listen to what Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29 says. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Okay, so somebody can dress up like a Jew. Someone can look like a Jew. That doesn't mean they're a Jew. But he says now, nor... Nor, so just because someone does the outward things doesn't make him a Jew. He says, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. So he's saying this outward expression in the flesh is not really the thing that matters. Okay, But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. For believers, when we we come to faith, we're, we're, there's a circumcision. This is circumcision of the heart. It's cutting off the flesh. It's cutting off that old flesh. It's being through with that. It's going to to the Lord. So the Jew and the Judaizers' confidence was in the flesh. It was in the things they did, the things they do, the works, the things they follow. It was in their works, righteousness, in keeping the law, in obeying rules, in works, works, works. That's the Jew. Was Do, 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 do. Follow this. Don't do, don't do. It's all about those things, following those rules and keeping the law. But truly born-again Christians have no confidence in the flesh. Our confidence is in Christ Jesus alone. Amen. We worship God in the Spirit. We worship in Spirit and in truth. We rejoice in Christ Jesus, not in the flesh not in our righteousness. We rejoice in His righteousness. And we have no confidence in the flesh. Man, if you've got confidence in your flesh, if you think, well, you know what, here's how that looks today. Okay, You're wondering, what would that look like today? Well, you know what, I'm really a good person. I'm a good person. And you know what, the things that I do, that'll outweigh the bad things that I do. And you know, it's like a scale, and it's going to tip, and God's going to see all the good that I did, and He's going he's to let me in because I'm a good person. A woman was arguing with her pastor about faith and works. She I think that getting to heaven is like rowing a boat, she said. One oar is faith and the other is works. If you use both, you get there. But if you only use one, you go around in circles. There's one big problem with your illustration, replied the pastor. Nobody's going to heaven in a rowboat. <laughs> it ain't about works tied to the gospel, and we hear it all the time. You can go to church after church after church, go to the website. How does someone get to heaven? Um, one I, I remember distinctly, it was a Catholic website, said, said uh, are, are we saved by grace? Yes, we're saved by grace through faith. Is that enough? But is that enough? No, it's, it's, it's really not. So you have to do this, and you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and, and then, you know what, you hope. You hope you get into heaven. There's nothing to add to the grace of God. There's nothing we can add to the grace of God. There's nothing we can do that brings any any righteousness to that. None. There's no self-righteousness. There's only one good work that takes a sinner to heaven. Only one. And it's the finished work of Christ on the cross. Amen? The finished work of Christ on the cross. So, Paul then, he's laid that out. Now what Paul's going to do in verses 4 through 6, he's going to examine his works of righteousness. Paul's going to, basically, he's going to account... He's going he's to count. He's going to break out, and he's going to show you that when he was lost, what he was counting on. He's going to show you he, who he was by works at one time. So he is examining his works' righteousness. He says in verse, because that's what the Judaizers are doing. They're, they're counting on the flesh. Their confidence is in the flesh. They're, they're telling these people, you've got to be a Jew so that you can depend on the flesh. But then you can trust Jesus, and you can get saved, but you've got to depend on the flesh. They're depending on the flesh. It's in the flesh. Paul's going to talk about his works righteousness. So he says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I more so. If anyone could have confidence in the flesh that he was going to heaven because of his works, Paul said it was him. And we're going to look at it and see. And I'll tell you this, going into this, Paul might have had, perhaps he had the greatest works resume ever. A lot of people today have a works resume. I've been in church all my life. That's right. I've been in church all my life. I've been, you know what? I've taught, I've taught a class for 50 years. You know what? I ain't missed a, I ain't missed a single service in 50 years. I came in when I had COVID. I didn't care. I wasn't missing church. I coughed on eight people. I didn't <laughs> care. I, but you know, it's just, I, I, I've worked at the soup kitchen. I've done mission trips. You know what? I've got all these things. You can have a works resume. And you think those things are what are going to carry you. Paul, but I think, I really think he's looking at this, Paul may have had the greatest works resume ever. Verse 5, he says, Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. See, Paul wasn't a converted Gentile who embraced the religion of the Jews. Paul was a true Jew. Circumcision on the eighth day was an exclusive privilege of, 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 of one of pure blood. So if they weren't... If they weren't a Jew of the Jews, if they weren't, you know, if they were not a Jew, they weren't weren't going to be circumcised on the eighth day. His parents were not converts. He was by blood an Israelite. He was of the stock of Israel. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He came from the tribe which gave Israel their first king, um, which never swerved from its allegiance to the house of David. He had royal blood flowing in his veins as a Jew. Paul's human heritage was something to be proud of. As a Jew, there was there were there were others that could say a lot of things. Some could trace their heritage back. Paul could take it back to Judah. And he was of the stock, he was of that tribe of Benjamin. What a great tribe. They never went astray. You look at you look at his his, and he didn't have anything to do with that. He was born into that. Yet there was a lot of pride in that. That was a thing. He's holding on to that. How many of us hold on to things like that? He was holding on to that. Then it says concerning the law of Pharisee. Now it's getting into what he actually did. In Paul's day, a Pharisee had reached the very summit of religious experience, the highest ideal a Jew could ever hope to attain. If anybody was going to heaven, it was the Pharisee. It was the Pharisees that had lived right. They were the ones that were going to get there because they were obeying all the rules. They were following to the minutest detail. Paul held to orthodox doctrine, and he tried to fulfill the religious duties Faithfully. Then it says, "...concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. The simplest duties were meticulously performed, and no Pharisee, however strict, could have blamed him for laxity. Paul was a religious overachiever. Concerning justification, which the Jews say was obtained by an observance of the law, Paul had done everything so conscientiously from his youth that in this respect he was blameless." He could, with more confidence than most of them, expect that justification which the law appears to promise. He could could hope for that. He could expect that. He neglected no duty that he understood the law to command. He was not guilty of deliberately violating it. He He led a moral and strictly upright life, and no one had cause to blame or to accuse him as a violator of the law of God. There's every reason to believe that Paul, before his conversion, was a young man of, of proper behavior, of upright life, and, and entire integrity, and that he was free from the indulgences of vice or passion into which young men often fall. Paul didn't give in to those things. He didn't follow those things. He stayed true. He was blameless. Paul, being kept, uh, having kept the letter of the law, was blameless in the eyes of fellow Jews but he was not sinless. Understand this. Not, the Scripture's not saying that he was sinless. He acknowledged even the, even the Pharisees would sin, but they had ways of covering their sin, and taking as the, all the Jews did. He wasn't sin, he was sinless, but he was blameless. According to the law, he was blameless. What a resume. He not only lived his religion, we see that. He was, man, what a Jew. He's a Jew of the Jews. He's a Pharisee. He's a blameless Pharisee. Then look, not only did he live it, But he defended it. In verse 6, it says, concerning zeal persecuting the church. Single handedly, he attempted to stomp out all remembrance of Jesus of Nazareth and every disciple and believer. He assisted at the stoning of Stephen, Acts chapter 7, and after that, he led the attack against the church in general, Acts chapter 8. And Acts chapter 8, 3 says, For as Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So listen, every Jew could boast in his own blood heritage, though you know, they couldn't take any credit for it, but they had pride in it. Some Jews could boast in their faithfulness to the Jewish religion, but Paul could boast of those things plus his zeal in persecuting the church. When Paul looked at himself, he looked at others, or looked at others, he considered himself to be righteous. He was self-righteous. He was works-righteous. According to his belief at that time, he had done everything that, that he needed to do. He was doing it to the nth degree. He was so zealous and passionate about it. He believed he was good. He was, he was going to get there based on his works But then Paul came face to face with Christ on the Damascus Road. And he saw himself compared to the perfection of Jesus Christ, and instantly he was confronted with his lack of righteousness. There's nothing that confronts our self-righteousness more than coming face to face with Jesus Christ. In the presence of God, all those things we hold on to that we think are, are are so important the intangibles, and the tangibles. Wow, they just melt away in the presence of the Lord. Amen? He was confronted with his lack of righteousness. He was confronted with his lostness. He was confronted with his sin and his absolute hopelessness. Jesus revealed to him his righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, and convicted Paul of his sin and need of righteousness that he did not possess. So here's Paul with the greatest works resume ever, and it just melts and evaporates in the presence of Jesus. He was thoroughly convicted and gloriously saved. Praise God, he just changed. And with Paul's conversion, his perspective changed. He now has the spiritual mind, not instantly, but, but as he grows and as he's writing this, he has the spiritual mind and he views his life from a heavenly perspective. He assessed his life before Christ and after Christ. He accounts for the things that he held so important before salvation and a, a, as opposed to after. And so now he compares what he was, his works righteousness, to what he sees here in verse 7 through 9 of faith righteousness. And uh, we'll read verse 7 through 9. It says, But what things were gained to me, what things, we see it there, what things were gained to me, these I've counted lost for Christ. Now, he didn't say some things. I think it's all things, and we see that later in the next verse. But what things, whatever whatever it was that I thought was gained, my my Jewish heritage, my being a Pharisee, my, my zealousness in persecuting the church, my blamelessness before the law. All these things counted up. You know what? I've counted them all loss. All loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things. So he, the, the, the umbrella just got bigger. I count all those things. Those things I would count as gain for me, but I count all things. And you know what? Being a, being a Pharisee would have been profitable. And, and, and the things he was doing, he would have made a good living. People knew who he was. They would, have, they would have liked what he was doing. People would have given him money. He would have been paid well. He would have had a good life in that regard. Um, he, he probably, and he had fame. He had recognition. He had. people knew who he was. He had, you know, he, all these things. Indeed, I count all things, all things, loss, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Now, I may be wrong, but I think that may be the only time in Scripture where, where Paul actually says, that, Christ Jesus, my Lord. We know he's born again, but I think that's the only place in Scripture where he actually says, Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. For my Lord, Jesus Christ, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as rubbish. Well, I wanna, without getting too graphic, let me tell you what that word is, rubbish. It's stuff you're going to discard. It's trash. It's waste. It's sewage. That's what Paul says. I count all things. All things outside of Christ are rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now, he wasn't saying that I might get saved. I'm not trying to get rid of those things. Paul was saved. He wanted to gain more of Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness. What was Paul dependent on before? The law, his righteousness. His righteousness according to the law. What does he say now? That I, that I can be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. That is the only faith that can get us to God. That is the only righteousness that, is, that can get us to God, is a faith righteousness, not a works righteousness. And I think about this, all things... You know, there's things that, that I can't even try to name them all because everybody in here will have a different picture in their mind of the things in their life. But what are the things in life that you hold on to? What are the things in your life that are so important to you? What, 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 if Christ isn't the most important thing, if, if we wouldn't just count everything else as rubbish in, in the sight of Christ, then we really need to evaluate that. I don't mean you need to go home and burn your house down. It's not what i not what I'm saying. But man, the things in our life shouldn't be. We shouldn't be counting them and 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 being being d- deterred by them or being distracted by them, being pulled away by them. Our focus should be on Christ, and it's on His righteousness. You know, I think about. I thought about this quote. You are all familiar with it? But Jim Elliot, Jim Elliot, one of the missionaries who was killed in Ecuador in the, I guess, in the late fifties. I think it was. He said, "He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose," and that's the idea here. Man, Paul was glad to give everything, everything, because he realized there's nothing that I can keep. Why would I, why would I hinder giving that up? I'll give it all up. I count it all but lost. All of it's lost for the sake of knowing Christ, because I'm going to gain what I can't lose in Christ, in His righteousness. Uh, Pastor Aaron and Jim, y'all can come forward. So I'm going to wrap up here and have prayer in just a moment. I guess a couple of questions I'd ask this morning is this: Am I am I trying to work my way to heaven? And you say we're in a Baptist church. Everybody here knows better than that. I I don't. I don't take that for granted. I've heard a lot of stories about Baptist deacons getting saved, praying for a couple of hours. Um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, People go to church 50 years and, and, and then truly get saved because they were, they were trusting in something that wasn't salvation. They're trusting in, a, in an experience or an emotion. They've never truly been born again. What, what is it that, you know, am, am I trusting in my works? Am I trying to work my way to heaven? Am I trusting in my righteousness to make me right with God? You know, if someone says, well, I don't really have anything I need forgiveness for, there's, there's a problem. There's a problem right there. There's a problem there. Uh, we, have a, we have a, listen, we have a presidential candidate that people want to make out to be, you know, they just want to make him a Christian so bad. But I've heard out of his mouth, um, I've heard out of his mouth that I don't have anything to repent of. I don't have anything to ask forgiveness for, Okay. So you, you can support someone as your, you can vote for him as your president, but don't try to make him a, Bible, a Sunday school teaching Christian when out of his own mouth he says, I don't have anything to repent of. Okay? So be careful with our politics. We want to saint someone to be on our side. Or we trust in our own righteousness to get us to heaven. Are the things of this world more important to me than the things of heaven? So what are you counting on to get you to heaven? Are you counting on your good works? Are you counting on your righteousness as you're a good person? I'm a good person. My good will outweigh the bad. God wouldn't send me to hell. I'm going to ask you three questions. If Paul couldn't get to heaven on his works resume... If he couldn't get to heaven on his works resume, how could anyone have any hope of getting to heaven on their works resume? Number two. Now, we see that here's what Paul said. All right, so first, Romans 14, 23 says, For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Everything Paul did in developing his works uh, righteousness, was sin, because it wasn't a faith. So if he had the greatest works resume, man, when he says, "I am the chief of sinners," he's right. The Holy Spirit of God said that. Paul's chief of sinners. His sin was so great because his works were so great in himself. But that's sin. Now, then, that means Paul was a great, great, great sinner. If God could save Paul, the chief of sinners, he can save you. That's right. Yes. Okay? So, so you can't get to heaven on your righteousness. There's no way. If Paul couldn't, you can't. But here's the fact. If he could save Paul, he can save you. Mm. I've heard people say, well, you don't know, preacher. You don't know what I've done. Well, I don't know what you've done, but I know what Paul did. Yep. I know what God said about Paul. Yep. And I know God said that he was the chief of sinners. And, and the Bible says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. If he could say, Paul, he could say to you. Salvation. And the last thing is this Salvation, just a statement. Salvation is not faith in Jesus plus anything. That's right. Salvation is by God's grace through faith. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Period. Amen. Amen. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart one believes in the righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him, believeth. It. it is to place your faith into Jesus Christ. Believes in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Acts 16:30, And he brought them out and said, Sirs, this is the Philippian jailer, the, the, the earthquake, the doors are open. He thinks everyone's left and they haven't left. They tell him not to kill himself because he was about to kill himself. And the jailer, then he brings them out and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Isn't that what the world wants to know? Yeah. What do I have to do? What do I have to do? Do a million push-ups and you can be saved. You know what the world will try to do? They'll try to do a million push-ups. But you tell them that if you'll confess your sin, you'll repent of your sin, confess your sin to God, and believe by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saying, no, 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 it can't be that easy. I'll do the meeting push-ups. Because we want to do. Mm-hmm. Jesus has done. Amen. It's done. D-O-N-E, period. There's nothing more to do. Right. All we can do is believe. Right. Put our faith in Him. And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. This morning, obviously this message... Was an evangelistic message today. Maybe, maybe you're struggling with works, but it may not be just about works, because he talks about all things. Maybe this morning you are a believer, but your joy's been stolen a little bit because I'm focused on things. My focus is too much on work, or money, or possessions, or. Positions or power or popularity. There's any number of things. It's what things have a grip on us. It would be a great day to come to the altar and just throw some things up here and leave them there. Trust on the Lord. Just lean on Him. Let Him bring that joy back in your life. But if today you're trusting in works, you're trusting in your righteousness, I hope you'll come out. I'd ask you to just step out come down here. I'd love to talk to you and and introduce you to Christ this morning. Don't worry about who's looking. Let them worry about themselves. Don't worry about them. You worry about you and what God's doing in your life. Like I said before, come humbly before the Word respond obediently to what God wants to do in your life. God may be speaking to you about something that I never even mentioned today. Maybe there's something you need to just come and talk to God about. So, as, again, these are not steps. These, these are, this is an altar up here. It's an opportunity for you to respond to maybe what God's doing in your life. So as we have this time here in just a moment of, of a response, of, of an invitation, respond to what God's doing. Move based on what He's doing in your life. Father, Thank you for your word. I thank you for the example that Paul gives us. Lord, we can wonder about our righteousness. We just look at Paul, and we can see righteousness is never going to get us there. If Paul couldn't get there on his own righteousness, none of us have a hope. And yet, as lost as Paul was, you saved his soul. And Lord, we know that if you save Paul, you'll save us. So Lord, if there's someone here today that needs to be born again, they, they need your righteousness. They need the righteousness that can only come through that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. God, I pray they'll step out today, come down, and, uh, and meet Jesus today. Father, would you just work and move and bless uh, if each person, meet their personal need, whatever's going on right now in their life, God. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. I